Welcome to Grace Point. Welcome to all of you joining us online. We're glad you're joining us via that medium this morning. Pray that God blesses you in your homes. Um, the story is told of some good old boys who were wondering if a shock collar that they were using was hurting their dog. And whenever I, I, I listen to the story, I think of West River folks. So, um, and so one friend had this brilliant idea. He said to his other friend, listen, I'll put the shock collar on. Go stand over there. You, you push the button. I'll see how, how bad it feels, sis. As you can see, this is probably not much of a good plan. So the button was depressed, upon which the one wearing the collar went right down to the ground. Flopped around like a fish out of water for a while. And it looked pretty painful. And uh, then when he tried to get up, the guy hit the button again. And same thing happened again. And he flopped around like a fish out of water and, and, and looked like it was uh, pretty painful. Well, this happened over and over again. And then there was another friend that was there with him. And he said, what are you doing? Why do you keep pressing the button? He said, well, at fun, it was, for, it was at first, excuse me, at first it was just fun. But now I'm a little bit scared to let him up because he looks like he's going to get me. So, so he just kept pushing the button. And that, I have to tell you this story. I, I didn't tell you this first hour, or I didn't say this first hour, but I'll do this really quickly. When I moved down to, um, uh, to southern Iowa, I had some guys in my maintenance department there that were from Missouri. Do you know Missouri folks, anybody in here? They're a different breed. <laughs> and they went out raccoon hunting, called the coon hunting. And uh, Bill was one of my supervisors. And they're out using his dog and one of his buddies. They shoot with pistols. They get these raccoons treed and shoot them with pistols. I'm not endorsing this. This is Missouri, okay? I was kind of horrified when I heard about what they were doing. And so the one friend shot at the, at the raccoon, and he shot Bill Garth. Oh, I should have said his name. Forget I said his name. Strike that. They, he's probably dead anyway now. But anyway, um, they shot his dog right through the muzzle. And, and, the, and the supervisor said it like this. My friend said, Bill, shot your dog. He dead? Nope. Let's hunt. You know, so they just hunted with this dog with a hole through its muzzle all night long, which, anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you that story. So, based on this, uh, this story here, these guys flopping around because with the shot collar, we, we can conclude that we've come a long way in constraining our pets. Would you agree with me on that? There's invisible fences now with shot collars. It keeps them fenced into an area so that they don't escape or attack uh, somebody. Craig O'Shell, lead pastor and author who wrote the book that we're using for this series called Winning the War in the Heart, which I highly recommend that you get. If you haven't got this book, we still have this book. You can get it. He, he tells a story of a, of, of a dog who was constrained by this invisible fence and a shot collar. But here's why he tells the story in the book, that the fence hadn't worked for years. It had been broke, but yet the dog stayed in the area thinking he was still constrained. And so what Rochelle says is the dog was living a lie. He thought, if I go here, I'm going to get shocked, so I'm going to stay within this little given area, and that, that, uh, that uh, basically was a lie because the fence was no longer operational uh, and, and was not working. And then Rochelle goes on to say this in his book, lies accepted had the same kind of effect on us people. They become this constraining, invisible fence kind of thing that oftentimes boxes us in and, and constrains us. So here's our introductory thought today. Lies deceive. We know that. Lies deceive. That's, that's a kind of a well doubt. We know lies deceive. But get this too. Lies can constrain you 
making you a prisoner. Not only do they deceive, but they constrain and they imprison. The fall of Adam and Eve is a classic example of how a lie deceives. Let me just read that to you. I know a lot of you know the story, but listen to it with fresh ears. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam and Eve were deceived by this lie, and instead of making them like God, when they accepted it, they became imprisoned by their lies. And they began to, uh, you know, what well, Chris brought that on in humanity. You know, listen to this. Second Corinthians 11 verse 3 says this. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So lies believed will twist the mind. And as Groeschel says in his book, they'll fence you in with an invisible fence kind of thing. I've been reading an accompanying book here recently. Pastor Aaron gives me these books all the time. So I, I just, Vicky's gone watching grandkids. By the way, hon, I know you're online. Love you lots. And so, just want to let you know that. Um, so, anyway, I've been reading this book by John Mark Comer called Lies, uh, Live No Lies, okay? If you want to get another good read to go along with this, these two books are great companion books. And this one here is very theologically deep and gets into a lot of the, the thought process behind lies. More, more, Greg Rochelle's book is super practical, Super instructive. It's a great read. Reads really fast. But so in this book, Live No Lies, Comer was saying this. Um, what happened in the Garden of Eden wasn't, was, was this idea thing penetrated into Eve. She believed a lie. And she began to tell a story in her mind, right? And, and she began to give into this thought process. Uh, and we could see it take place. You know, she, she made God's instructions more severe, God didn't say if you touch the fruit, you would die. He said if you eat the fruit, you would die. But when you begin to rationalize away following God, in your mind, you'll make his ways worse than they are. You'll make them more severe than they are. You'll begin to justify why you shouldn't follow God. And, and Comer, I think it was really insightful. He says, really what happened there was we see the power of the mind and the power of adopting wrong ideas and how destructive that can be. And so I've been reading this book. I mean, I, I read through about a third of it here in basically a sitting. It's very, very, in, in, very enlightening. Um, and so um, basically, though, Groeschel says this about lies. Lies divert you from your purpose. They distract you from God's voice. And they destroy your potential. So when we begin to leave lies and begin to create a story based on lies in our mind, it diverts us from our purpose, it distracts us from God's voice, and it destroys your potential. Divert, distract, destroy. Divert, distract, destroy. Can you remember that? That's what lies do to you. And so far in this series, we talked quite a bit on lies. And so if you missed the first couple of weeks, it's good background information for what I'm going to share today. And I highly recommend you go to our website and you look at those messages. I think they'll help you uh, to understand and catch yourself up to what's going on uh, this morning. But last week, we started turning the corner a little bit and talking about how then do we replace lies 
with truth. Because we're, we're in this midst of this replacement principle in this series. Replace the lies with truth. Well, last week I talked a lot about how it's so important that the follower depend on the person of the Holy Spirit. You can't engage in winning the war in your mind by trying harder. You have to believe more. And you have to trust in the Holy Spirit to equip you and empower you to, to be an overcomer. But you cannot do it on your own. Amen? Oftentimes what I see, especially in American culture, is we'll preach a message like this and people think, i got to go try harder. No, you don't. Go believe more. Go depend on the Holy Spirit more. Today we're going to get into the second aspect of, of how to really replace lies with truth. And it's simply this. You got a major on this, and this is the big thought. Truth, God's word, is a counterweapon to lies. So if you're going to be a person that wins the battle in the mind, you have to have the Holy Spirit living in you, coupled with this really high view of God's word and as truth in your life to live by. Um, Listen to John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. It says this. To the Jews who I believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the what? What do you know? And what does it do? Sets you free. You'll know the truth of God. It'll set you free. You see how different that is from living lies? What do lies do? They deceive you. They constrain you. They imprison you. What does the truth of God do? It sets you free. And if you're free in Jesus Christ, the word says, you're free indeed. Lies in prison, truth sets you free. Lies constrain, truth gives you perspective and understanding. Here, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. For the word of God is active and alive. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word is this powerful, magnificent thing that's supposed to be active in our life, setting us free from lies, giving us direction, showing us the path of life, right? That's supposed to be what directs our lives. Ephesians six seventeen says, the follower of Jesus is to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And oftentimes we, we think of the sword of the spirit, we go out there and we just do all this battle. What are we doing battle with? Lies. We're doing battle with the lies of culture. We're doing battles with, you know, fractured individuals and, 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 and fractured ideologies and fractured institutions. And we're, 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 we're not letting those things just come into our heart unguarded. We're, we're using the, the word of God as our filtering agent. Amen. That's what we do with the word of God. That's the sword of the spirit. You're supposed to use the sword of the word, the truth of God's word, to do battle, to keep your mind thinking correctly because how you think is how you live. Change your thinking, right? Change your life. And so it's really important that we have this high view of God's word. I don't know about you, but old habits die hard in my life. How about you? Self-reliance. Anybody been taught self-reliance since they've been wee little? You know, you, you just, you don't, you know, ask, this is Midwest, man. You don't ask for help. You die and vine before you'll admit that you have a problem. You never admit you have a problem. It's hard to make an ask of anybody, right? You're just going to gut it through. And we think sometimes that's what we do here with the things of God. We do not gut it through. We do not try harder. We believe more. We fill with the Holy Spirit. We depend on the Holy Spirit. And we have a high value of God's word as truth. So God's word is divine and it's dependable. 
Here a while back, I was in Pastor Ben's office talking with Ben, and he had taken the graph he had shown me a while back, and he had blown it up and put it on his wall. It's just this really cool graph showing the interconnectedness of God's Word, and we have that graph going to show up behind me here, and I want to explain that to you for, for a couple minutes. Wow, this is really cool. Anyway, this didn't happen first hour. We always get better by your hour. If you look at this horizontal line at the bottom, that represents Scripture, okay? And, and if you look here at the white right there, that's the book of Genesis. If you look over here at the white, this is the book of Matthew. And so the, the Bible's laid out linearly along the bottom horizontal uh, part of this graph, right? And these little columns going up and down, you see those columns going up and down there? They represent the length of chapters, and so what these two guys did was they said, okay, Genesis 3, you know, goes over here and we see it here in Matthew. And they connected it with a line. And there are 63,779 connections in the Bible like that, where one part of the Bible references another part. And they made this beautiful graph. Isn't it pretty? What does it show us? The Bible is no ordinary book. It's super interconnected. It's hyperlinked. It's something that men could not create. People like to say today, well, somebody just came up with this. Really? They had the ability to connect Scripture 63,779 times? You think that's humanly possible to do that? You should say no. That's impossible, Pastor Steve. That can't happen. It's a divine book. It's not a work of men. It's a work of God. It is God's word to us. Whenever I see stuff like this, I'm super visual. Anybody else really visual? I look at it and go, oh my goodness, I know this, but now I really know it. And we should look at that and say, my, that's pretty. But more than that, we should say, wow, the implications of that are grand. God's word is divine and it's dependable. God's word is not meant to be just informative. It's meant to be transformative. We're supposed to look at it as a divine conversation we're having with our creator. And so as we couple this understanding and this high view of, of God's word with filling of the person of the Holy Spirit, then we're equipped to do the battle, to win the war in, in the mind. Um, so my question is this. Do you believe what that graph is illustrating? Do you believe that God's word is divine? Do you believe it? Will it change how you do your life? Will it set the, the, the tone of how you think? Will its truths guide you? Or will culture voice drown out the truths of Scripture? What's going to govern the way that you think? The Word of God, we're told, is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit joints tomorrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You've got to look at God's Word as divine, friends. You've got to see it as this transformative opportunity in your life. You've got to begin to read it with fresh eyes and an open heart and an embracing spirit. So the two big hitters we have thus far in changing your thinking, changing your life is the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. These are life-changing allies in the winning of the war of your mind. Now, chapter 3 of the book here... Um, by Greg Rochelle, winning the war, win, uh, in, in, winning the war in your mind. Which again, I'm going to say, if you don't have this, we have these out there. Get it, get another book. And there's a lot of workbooks too. That that's what the workbooks look like. These two go together. They're out there. And if you haven't yet gotten them, I would strongly recommend you get them. But chapter three in the book, winning the war of your mind, is so practical and so informative. Read it and do it. Amen. 
This series is going to do you no good if you just listen to me. You got to take it home and you got to do it. Um, I remember the other day we were walking, Vicky and I, and I think I shared this in one hour. No, I'm, I'm sharing extra stuff here and I don't have time to do this. Uh, but anyway, I'll share it really fast. We're going for a walk up at the cabin and four dogs attacked us. They were surrounding us and going crazy and, and really not under control. And then finally they got them out of, uh, you know, we had some gentle words of exchange with the owner. At any rate, um, and then we're walking away, and I said to Vicki, let's just not think about it. Because what good would that do at that point, right? It's done. Let's think about something that's more edifying. See, this is where God wants to take us. Instead of having those kinds of things occupy your mind, your mind should be occupied with that which is profitable, that which is praiseworthy, that which is pure and right and good. And so as I finish up this morning, let's dive into how we capture the lie and replace it with truth. How we capture the lie and replace it with truth. So, first of all, capture the lie. Identify the problem in your life. Remember, we don't just do life mindlessly. We think about what we're thinking about. And if you have some problems going in your life, identify it. I have this problem. Two, then ask probing questions about that, that problem. Try to get to the source of why am I experiencing this? Why is this going on in my life? And three, then try to pinpoint the lie. Say, so if you want to capture the lies in your life, you have to first say, what are the problems I'm facing? Ask probing questions and then try to pinpoint the lie. I'm going to share an example uh, from the book here, uh, Winning the War in Your Mind. Um, there are several more, but I'm going to share this one example. Let's say your problem is enormous consumer debt. You are constantly buying the newest and the bestest. Yes, I know bestest is not a word. You go on expensive vacations. You buy a cool car. You rock the latest phone. You drink the hippest coffee. You purchase even hippier clothes. I don't know. Is that a... You know, and shoes. You have a different pair of shoes for every day of, of the month. You keep buying more, drowning yourself financially. Okay, you've identified a problem. Would you agree with me that that's a problem? See, if you don't agree with me that that's a problem, we got a problem. Okay, this is a problem. Now, you ask probing questions like, why am I doing this? When did this start? How does this make me feel? Is fear driving this? Is So, what am I afraid of? Is there a certain trigger that prompts this behavior, this response from me? If so, why do I so often spend so compulsively? So now you're probing into the problem. As you ask these probing questions, pray for God to help you pinpoint the lie that's at the root of your behavior. Perhaps you'll remember that you grew up and your parents were always bemoaning what they didn't have. They gave the devil an opportunity to deceive you into believing the lie. If I just had better stuff, I'd fit in. If I had more, I'd be happy. Buy more, newer, bester, also not a word. Stuff does not make you happy. Yet you keep spending because a lie believed as true will affect your life as if it were true. So you see how you start to identify the lie? Problem. Right? Probing questions. Pinpoint what's behind that. Helps you to clarify. Oh, okay, what's driving me is this lie. Okay? You getting me there? You feeling this now? This is how you begin to say, I'm basing my life on some lies. Because people say, well, I don't know if I'm basing my life on lies. What's your problems? Probe into them a little bit. What's driving those problems, okay? And then, now remember, in this first few, few 
few messages were on this big principle, replacement principle, replace the lie with truth. So now we're to part two, replace the lie with the truth of God's word. And I'm going to use the example of Jesus here, temptation. In Matthew chapter four, we read how after his baptism, Jesus went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and Satan came to tempt him. The temptation of Jesus is so similar to the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve and how the serpent uh, interacted with them back in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent got Eve to doubt God's word. Eve even made the word of the Lord more severe than what it was. Um, God didn't tell them that they couldn't touch the fruit or they die. He said, you eat of the fruit, you die. But she made God's word more severe by saying, if I even touch it, I will die. You know what's happening? She's rationalizing. Doubt's setting in. I, I'm... I'm justifying reasons not to follow God's word. It's too hard. It's too to keep. And, and doubt crept in as she listened to the lie of the serpent. They could be like God. And, 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 and so what we had going on here was classic sin and, 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 and how sin approaches us. Eve said the forbidden fruit was pleasing to the eye. In sin language, that means she was giving in to the lust of the eyes. It looks good. I want it. I mean, oftentimes, wrong thinking, a lie believe, is because we're looking at something and say, that looks good. I think I want that. And then she, uh, she, she saw it was good for food. I always wonder when I read this story, you don't know it's good for food. You've never eaten it. How do you eat? Man, it may taste terrible. You ever, ever bite into something and it's delicious and you take a bite and go, oh, that could have been the situation. She did, how'd she know it was good for food? She'd never eaten it. But she's giving into lust of the flesh. She wants this. She wants to satisfy uh, that impulse. And she thought this is desirable for gaining wisdom. In sin language, what that means is she was giving into the pride of life. I can be like God. If I eat this, I can be my own God. I can be equal with God. And then she succumbed to the lie. She succumbed to these wrong ideas, like Comer said in his book, she gave in to this wrong ideology. Sin entered into our existence, and here we are today, right? Still in that mess. Back to Matthew 4. First, Satan tempts Jesus to turn these stones into bread. Now, that's logical. He's been fasting for 40 days, he's hungry. But Jesus would not be mastered by the lust of the flesh. He would not be mastered by physical impulses. So here's the lie. I must indulge my physical impulses. That's what basically Satan was saying. Indulge your physical impulses. Now, you're hungry. Give in to that. And, and Jesus wouldn't do that. He would not give in to that. Instead, he replaced it with this truth. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every what? Word. That comes from the mouth of God. What the Lord Jesus was saying is, I will not be mastered by my impulses. Instead, God's word will master me. You see the difference? He responded to the lie with what? God's word. This didn't work, so Satan tries another angle, right? And he, he basically quotes Psalm 91 here in this temptation. He took Jesus to the highest point of the temple and told him, throw yourself off because, as, I'm, as Psalm 91 says... It is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift up you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So what he's trying to do is get Jesus to show off, to let people know who he is. It's all about image. Show them your image. Show them who you are. Manage yourself here. Make yourself known. The lie is this. I must maintain my image. Jesus, no, he didn't. I don't have to do that. I serve God. I don't have to maintain my image. And again, instead of doubting God, um, like Eve did, 
uh, the truth prevailed. And, and he said this, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you, we, I don't need to do that. I don't need to manage my image. Do we spend a lot of our time today, folks, managing our image? What do you think? Man, we do. I see this all the time. It's a besetting sin, man. So much image management going on. We don't need to do that. We just need to love the Lord God. We're secure in our God. He loves us with an undying love. We don't have to manage our image. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Satan tries another angle, a third angle. He showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Okay, now he's, he's appealing to the pride of life. You can be over all these. They're mine to give to you. Just bow down to me and worship me. So the lie is this. I must be in control of my life or I can be God of my life. See, that's what the original temptation in the garden was all about. You can be God of your life. You can control your life. Satan basically comes to Jesus. It's the same old thing. You can be God of your life. You can control your life. And Jesus responds once again with the truth. He responds by saying, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we see here how the truth is so powerful in replacing the lie. What do you think? Can you do this? People never know how to respond to me when I say stuff like this in church. Because I can give you all the information in the world, but if you don't take this home and start doing it, it doesn't do you any good, right? You have to start replacing the lies in your life with the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word has to govern your life. Amen? You have the two big hitters, the person of the Holy Spirit, and you have the truth of God's word as these divine allies. And if you will just be relying upon the person of the Holy Spirit, and if you will really begin to see God's word as true and transformative, you can change the way you think and you can change the way you live. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take care of every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So you need to make a transformative decision today. Make a decision to take your thoughts captive. Remember, part of, the, part of what's behind this series is we've got to think about what we think about. So we have to make a decision. I'm going to take my thoughts captive. I'm not going to just let my mind randomly think thoughts. I'm going to start addressing those thoughts. And I'm going to make them obedient to Christ and live out that decision. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. And you have the truth of God's word as a counter weapon uh, to assist you in all this. So we need to become truth declarers to ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus did when he was tempted. And Satan brought on the lies, but Jesus counteracted with the truth of God's word. And so today, this, this, this message ends with um, and this exercise in declaring truth. So first of all, you identify the lie. How do you do that? What are the problems in your life? Probe into it a little bit. What's the, what's the lie? Pinpoint the lie behind it, okay? So problem, right? Probe, pinpoint, right? Identify the lie. Then what's the counteracting truth to that? What does God say about that issue? Then make a declaration to yourself. Speak to your soul. Say it out loud. It doesn't matter if people think you're crazy. You probably are a little crazy. Say it out loud. Begin to speak God's truth to you and let that govern how you think. Uh, I'm going to end here with a couple examples uh, from the book, um, Winning the War in Your Mind. You know? And so there's more examples in here. But let me give you these couple examples of how this works. So here's the lie. I'm a victim. Nothing good ever happens to me. By the way, I hear that lie all the time. Just so you know, people come to me with a victim mentality. Life just happens at me. I'm out of control. Poor me, right? But are you a victim? What does the truth of God's word says? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. So here's the declaration you have to make. If you feel like you're a victim, here's a declaration you have to make. God tells me that I am not a victim. Rather, I am a victor in Christ. I am an overcomer, and I could do all this through him who gives me strength. You begin to declare that to yourself. You think thoughts. You're taking the lie captive, and you're replacing it with the truth of God's word. Second lie, listen to this. God can't really be trusted. I need to be in control of my own life. Now, you might not think, oh, I don't have that problem. But do you? Are you trying to live a life where you're trying to insulate yourself from all troubles and you're trying to, you know, stop anything bad from happening? You're trying to control all the outcomes constantly? I want to say to you today, friends, listen to me. I think most of us have this problem of trying to control and manipulate our lives to comfort and to ease. We do. We do. It's just It's the American way. And that's really a declaration that God can't be trusted. I need to be in control of my own life. Well, here's the truth. God demonstrates his own love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? So we can trust this God who loves us because while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's a declaration. God loves me more than I love myself. He knows me more than I know myself. He has my best interests in mind and he can be trusted. If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Declare that truth to yourself. Otherwise, you're going to, when the finances hiccup, you're going to go, oh, no, life is coming undone and all that. You know, no, God is in control. He loves you. Amen. He gave you his son. Begin to be ones who speak to yourself. Take your thoughts captive and declare truth to replace the ones that are lies. Amen. I'm done. I'm going to pray for us and have an announcement. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord God, I want to thank you for uh, this, like, last three weeks. It really, they really all go together. This replacement principle is a huge concept, Lord, in our Christian transformation. And I pray that we become people who address lies in our lives and replace them with your truth, God. We understand these great allies that you've given us, the person of the Holy Spirit and the divine truth of your word. These are transformative agents in our lives, Lord. And so I pray that we would never be satisfied with just some information, but that we'd actually live the life you called us to live, Lord. And so Holy Spirit, fill each one of us here today. Fill us anew. And help us to have this high view of your word. And may our reading of your word be more than uh, duty, or obligation may become transformative in this experience where scripture becomes alive and becomes a now word to us and that it begins to form the way we think and then, of course, the way we live. We love you, Jesus, and praise you. In your name we pray these things. Amen.